Well, Father God, we pray that you fill this uh, house with your presence today and that you would indeed um, be Lord over this, uh, your family. We incline ourselves to you and to receive from you whatever you have for us this morning. Uh, we look to you as provider. Uh, we look to you as our teacher Uh, we look to you as uh, our source, Lord. But we thank you for the gift of life that you've given us, that you've given us a life of purpose. We pray that you would lead us forward into it, that our days on the earth would be rich and meaningful. In Jesus' name, everybody says, amen. amen. Uh, we just had a word earlier uh, that maybe uh, the Spirit of the Lord uh, would be in the mood to heal uh, people uh, physically at the end of worship. So let me just pray for that. I, I just pray, Lord, uh, that this morning it would be uh, as it was in, in Luke 5, uh, where it says that the Spirit of the Lord was present to heal many. We pray that you would go out and touch us physically where we uh, need a little help. In the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters, receive the health and order of the Lord in the places uh, where you have been disordered and hurt. The Lord desires that you should be strong and free. In Jesus' name, be strong, be well, be free. Amen. Worth doing. We did that a few weeks back. Somebody actually got healed. Uh, and I don't even know the whole story. But what the heck? The Lord is in the house and it's worth making the most of it. We need to warm up. We need to warm up because, you know, the worship was just so long. <laughs> Stretch, roll your shoulders. Uh, here's a warm-up question for you. Uh, this is going to be kind of a heady sermon. It's going to be kind of, you know, a little bit thought-provoking, so you can just kind of massage your brain a little bit. That's always helpful. Some of you will need a deep massage. You know what I'm talking about. All right, and then here's a warm-up question to kind of, get the, kind of get the brain juices flowing. Here we go. What's one reason your life is awesome? So it's just something awesome about your life. One reason your life is just awesome. You woke up this morning, and I know what you thought. As soon as the alarm went off, you thought, my life is awesome. That's what you thought, right? So what's one reason you thought that? I'll give you, I'll give you eight seconds to consider. One reason your life is awesome. You know, and, and, and let's, let's just say to clean it up that you're not allowed to answer, my life is awesome because today I'm going to get to go to church and see Jordan. That, let's, just, let's just say that, ca that doesn't count today. It has to be something different than that. Something different. All right. Everybody got it? Now share with your neighbors one reason your life is awesome. Go ahead. Go ahead. sure everybody shares. There's nobody sitting around you. There's nobody sitting next to Sophia, so she's going to have to stand up and just shout it out. You turned around and talked to people. All right, all right, that's enough of that. That's enough of that. What's, tell me, tell me, what's one reason your life is awesome? Who's got a good reason? What, what's your reason, Nana? Because you have me for a grandson, yep. We're just... We'll just stop right there and we'll just continue on that theme of how awesome I am and uh, what a great grandma I have. Uh, who, else, who else has one? Mary. I'm back. You're back. To Mary, Mary's been uh, on a sojourn away from Blue Water. She's back to Blue Water and it's awesome to be with you guys. One of the highlights of her life. Clearly, give yourself some snaps. All right. What's raising your life is awesome. Give me some more. Because you got choices. Insightful. I like that. You can think about that one a long time. God speaks to us and we can hear him, which is a lot better than God speaking to us and us not being able to hear him. Uh, true. True that. What else? You got Jesus. There you go. In, in Sunday school, we learn the answer is always Jesus or pray. And so <laughs> Jesus is, is a good answer to this question. Yeah, Jeff. 
You live in a house with some awesome people. Yeah. Yeah, and they get to live in a house with you, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Couple more. Being surrounded by people who are pursuing love. Yeah, so we could probably unpack that too because, of course, we can get surrounded by people who aren't oftentimes, and it's nice, to have some, it's nice to have some traveling companions, isn't it? Yeah, when you're trying to take that journey. What else? One more, one more, and it's going to be the best one. Now I've intimidated you. Waking up and enjoying another day of life. Of course, Rochelle would say that because if you know her, that's just, that's just her. It's like, look, life, look, here it is. And, and that's pretty awesome. And really, when it gets, gets right down to it, uh, we, should, we should all see life that way, right? Now, if I asked you what's one reason your life isn't awesome, would that have been easier for you to answer? Harder? Because the truth is, you know, we got, we got both things, don't we? We have elements of life that make life awesome. Uh, for which we should be grateful. If nothing else, there's this kind of like, life, look what happened, life happened. Here we are, we exist, and, and that's probably good news, although you can work yourself into such a state that you feel like existence itself is worth hating. All right, well, that's your warm-up, that's your warm-up. Congratulations, uh, you are now warm. You won't pull any mental muscles as we go forward. Because today I wanna, I wanna talk about a concept called deconstructionism. Everybody say deconstructionism. Uh, uh, we are uh, embarking on a series on culture. We're just going to examine different facets of our social dialogue, the culture in which we live today, uh, the, uh, the cultural air that, that we breathe. And I just want to introduce this idea of deconstructionism, which is essentially the human passion for dismantling ourselves, or the human passion for dismantling our societies or our culture or the things that we believe. And, and I call it a passion. Uh, deconstructionism can also be a philosophy or an ideology, a sort of religion, which is what an ideology is. And it's a big word, deconstructionism. It has a lot of syllables uh, in it. It's very popular in places like American uh, universities. Um, but I, I, I want to introduce the the idea into our heads so that as we talk about the culture in which we live and some of the cultural conflicts that we're all experiencing these days, um, we kind of understand uh, one of the big things that's going on. And one of the big things that's going on is there's a real passion for dismantling things uh, that we uh, as a people have tended to hold sacred. And there's a rush in that. There's an, a, there's an empowerment in that. There's a feeling in that that people really, really like. Unfortunately, it can lead to some nastiness, and we just want to be examining that as we go forward. Uh, we're doing a series on culture because, as we say often around Blue Water, culture is the best coach. Culture is the best coach. It's one, one, of our, one of our sayings. And it's one of the reasons, for instance, that I do those silly warm-up questions and stuff like that. It's to, set, it's to set a mood. And you can think of culture as a mood. It's something that you get caught up in without even thinking about it. Uh, it's really closely connected to attitude. And your attitude might be the most important and powerful thing about you. It's certainly the most contagious thing about you. So culture is sort of the attitude that we all kind of share in. And around Blue Water, we try to create a kingdom, faith-building culture. Because, frankly, the rest of the world is not necessarily a faith-building culture. It's not necessarily positive and helpful. It's a very tumultuous place the world. Uh, and so we're trying to create uh, a mood, an attitude, a whole kind of system. It, it involves, you know, the things that we say, the expectations we have, the norms that we have for behavior, the things that we can count on without even really needing to think about it. Uh, in some places, miracles are easier than other places. Why? Well, it's just the environment. Right? It's the environment of faith. It's, it's, it's the love that might surround you. It's, it's the amount of gratitude that you have as opposed to critique with which you're obsessed. Right? That, that's what I mean. And culture is the best coach because, because it's everywhere at all times and it's constantly reinforcing us to be a certain way. And if you have a healthy culture, it's 
constantly reinforcing you toward healthy things. And if you have an unhealthy culture, then it's constantly, without even you really thinking about it or noticing it, reinforcing you toward unhealthy things. Culture is incredibly powerful. Like, collective attitude is, is uh, incredibly powerful. That's true for a body of believers trying to live uniquely in the world, but it's also true for society at large. Culture is the most important thing about any society. And uh, our culture is, is in flux. There are some very significant wars going on. It's worth looking at and thinking through intentionally every once in a while because culture is not something that you notice. It's like, it's like air. It's so prevalent that you don't even feel it. You know, every once in a while you have to take a step back and be like, oh, yeah, this is important. What's in our air after all? Because if you're not keeping track of it, some contaminants can get there and and start to weaken you and, and, and sicken you. Uh, everybody shift gears a minute. Now I want to talk about the Ten Commandments. Uh, you know, we'll start with the first four. Um, you know, I'm the Lord your God. It's only me. No other gods before me. Don't carve any images and try to control me and pretend that I'm something that you can manage and handle. Don't take my name in vain because I'm not the kind of God that you can control with an incantant, incantation or a ritual. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, in other words, you, know, you have to have rituals in your life where you set aside uh, days to just trust God and to keep that well rehearsed in your life. Otherwise, you're going to screw it up, people. You're going to screw it up. Uh, number five. Ah, it took you a minute, didn't it? Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, really the only commandment that comes with a promise. Honor your father and your mother. It's on the back of your program. <clears throat> uh, at least the NIV translation is, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord God has given you. Some translations will say, honor your father and your mother um, so that it might go well with you in the land that the Lord has given you. There's something about this commandment that the Lord sort of underscored and he said, do this one or you won't be able to keep up this thing, this society for long. Do this one, otherwise things are going to fall apart as the, as the generations go. Things are going to grind to a halt. And then he goes <clears throat> to some of the more, you know, uh, you know, morally directive and narrow ones. Well, you can't murder, uh, don't commit adultery, you can't lie, don't bear false witness against uh, your neighbor, don't steal. Um, and don't, uh, don't covet. Um, did I forget one? We got them all. I should have been counting on my fingers. Um, so the, the, first, the first several commandments, anyway, are about keeping your head on straight with respect to God and thinking about Him and kind of living in a way that orients you toward God. And then there's this honor your father and your mother, which, which uh, to me has always seemed like the most bracing and, and surprising in the list of, of the Big Ten. Honor your father and your mother, and, and just to stress its uniqueness, God adds, so that it might go well with you as time goes on in, in, this, in this land where you live. What, is, what does the word honor mean, to honor your father and your mother? Well, I don't know. Honor is just one of those words that, that are worth meditating upon. I mean, it means to appreciate your father and your mother. I think it probably means to have some gratitude uh, toward your father and your mother or something like that. It doesn't necessarily mean obey your father and your mother, although, you know, respect and obey is certainly going to figure in there uh, for certain. I suppose there's a way to disagree with someone but still be very honoring toward them. But you have to have an honoring attitude toward, toward your folks, toward the generation that preceded you so that the culture goes well in the land. Otherwise, there's going to be some sort of generational breakdown, God seems to be saying. Why? Why does that happen? Why this warning? Well, I think if you don't appreciate what the generation before you has given you, if you don't appreciate the good things that they're passing down, but perhaps say only appreciate the bad things that they've passed down, because, you know, fathers and mothers are always, they're a blessing, but they're a mixed blessing, am I right? Just... Just, you know, I mean, think about it. I know you've never thought about this before, but your parents might not have been perfect. 
Um, you know, they can be kind of a mixed blessing. And I think, you know, that's kind of assumed in the commandment. Otherwise, God would not have had to have given the commandment, right? Right? Uh, it'll make a point to honor them in spite of whatever junk they've thrown your way. Because if you don't embrace the good stuff that's being passed down, right, if you only focus on the bad stuff and don't uh, embrace the good stuff, then every subsequent generation will essentially have to start over, right? I want to stand on my parents' shoulders, and I want my children to stand on my shoulders. I want things to progress. And if they're so busy, my children so busy criticizing me and rejecting everything about me, then the good lessons that I passed on won't be embraced by them. And they'll have to rediscover those good lessons for themselves. And then society doesn't progress. It just goes in a circle. And, and that can get nasty. Are you following me? Are you following me? And, and, and this is just kind of a simple generational dynamic that God zeroes in on. In the Big Ten Commandments, I mean, he makes it one of the Big Ten. Why? Well, because I think there's this huge tendency in human nature to just destroy our parents, to just dishonor our parents, to dishonor the generation that has gone before us, and, you know, to just dismantle the culture that we inherit and do it our way because, hey, we know better. Um, and you might know better. We might know better than our parents. Of course, one of the big reasons we know better than our parents is because we get to start where they ended. You know, it's because they've given us something to build upon. And we have to recognize that. We have to be humble and grateful. We have to recognize that's one of the things that makes our life awesome. That we've inherited some good things that we didn't necessarily build ourselves whether from our biological parents or from our fathers and mothers, generally speaking, the people who have gone before us and made a way. You following me? And it's just a really interesting commandment uh, for that reason. If every generation has to, has to reinvent its wheel, so to speak, uh, then society will get stuck badly. And society will have to busy itself deconstructing the lessons of mom and dad instead of building upon the lessons from mom and dad. And, and if society gets stuck in that sort of deconstructing business, then it will start to thrash about in dysregulation. Dysregulation. Now, there's another big word. Everybody say dysregulation. It's one of those words that you get from, from psychology, behavioral psychology in, in particular. And for some reason, uh, in, in the field of psychology, you never use the prefix D-I-S. You always spell it D-Y-S. Dysregulation and dysfunction with a Y. Why, 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 why is that? Psychologists in the crowd, can anybody tell me? I don't know. Is that like, what's that? They ask because they like asking why. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Anyway, that's how it's normally spelled. Dysregulation, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying things get kind of out of balance. You kind of, you kind of lose, you lose your way. You're not able to control yourself. You're not able to control impulses and things very well. Uh, you get dysregulated. Uh, and another thing about that commandment is, uh, you know, honor your father and your mother. If you're like me, that's the first of the Ten Commandments that you taught your children. Uh, and uh, the main way my children learn to honor me is by watching me honor my parents. Because if I teach them to honor me and I don't honor my parents, then my children are going to smell BS. Uh, and of course, that can happen in culture as well. And we get kind of dysregulated in our families as a result. Again, none of this is to say that families don't suffer from all sorts of dysregulation anyway. And, you know, some of us had some very, very challenging parents. Um, and so maybe in your specific situation, this is a very, very complicated commandment. But as a cultural commandment, I think it's a pretty sound one, you know. In general, we need to honor those who have gone before and the culture that we, uh, that we inherit. Is it really true that we will try to deconstruct and dismantle our parents and the generation in front of us if, if God doesn't command us to do otherwise? Because it seems, 
you know, striking that God would have to command us to do this, just like it always seems striking to me that God would have to command us to take a day off every week. I mean, who needs that commandment? It's fun to take a day off every week. Well, evidently we do, because we're dysregulated, because it's very hard for us to regulate ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I think there is a tendency to deconstruct, uh, sometimes because we individually have had a bad set of parents um, sometimes because we're, we're ashamed of not living up to the standards of the people who have gone before us. But sometimes just because we're humans and we have a passion within ourselves to deconstruct. What does all this have to do with uh, a sermon series on culture? Well, culture is kind of fluid. You know, the culture in which we live is always kind of in flux a little bit. Sometimes uh, more than others, if, if we were living in kind of a more brutal time, where, you know, we were struggling against nature to carve out a niche and stuff like that, then the culture that we would develop as a society would be anything, culture would be that which works, that which keeps us alive. Uh, if every day is a struggle for, uh, for life, then culture would, would be, you know, whatever keeps us alive, those are the practices that we would tend to embrace. Otherwise, we die and, uh, you know, we wouldn't get to make that mistake. But in times of ease, in, in times of prosperity, in times of, of security and, and peace, then it's really easy for culture to dysregulate. It's easy for culture to sort of drift into all sorts of indulgences and practices that are themselves harmful, but because the environment is not brutal, we get away with them for a long time, you know? Um, if you're otherwise healthy, you can eat junk food, but if you're sick and you eat junk food, you won't last very long, you know? Um, if, uh, if you're in a pioneer community and you're trying to fight back the forest and keep the crops going, uh, then you and your neighbors need to toe the line every day, morally. You need to be able to rely on each other but if you live in our society, and even if you don't have a job, even if you haven't had a job for years, you're still not going hungry, um, then you can kind of drift into, eh, live and let live, whatever. Your behavior doesn't immediately matter to, to you or to anyone else. And you can, you can soften up. You can dysregulate. And with the Ten Commandments, as with most of God's laws, what God is doing is he's giving us a straight edge for our culture a straight edge for our culture through, through uh, the generations. If nothing else, remember these big ideas, and that will help keep you true, even if you're one in, in one of those times where you would tend to drift into indulgence and di dysregulation and harmful practices and nonsense thinking and stuff like that. In biblical history, in the Old Testament, we get a history of this nation of Israel. And those of you who have studied the New Testament and the history of Israel in the Bible, you kind of know this pattern. When times were hard, Israel called out to God. When times were easy in the, in the history of Israel and there was peace, what happened? Yeah, Israel always drifted away from God, always forgot what had brought it to a place of blessing, always. And in particular, they drifted into, you know, false worship, usually into Baal worship. We talked about that a couple of months ago, Baal worship and, and other forms of paganism that sort of inhabited the Middle East in that time. Baal worship was a worship of basically fertility gods, in particular one, one, one sort of fertility goddess, and uh, it was, a, it was a, a religion kind of built around the worship of prosperity and uses of wealth. Uh, it was uh, the rituals of the religion were built around, oh, you could call it sexual dysregulation, acts of... Uh, sexual practices of various sorts with various sorts of partners at the temple, you know, sort of this fascination with sexuality. And also it was a, a ultimately a, a religious culture built around the sacrifice of infants, of babies, uh, human sacrifice of, of babies. Uh, I mention that because uh, we're going to talk about cultural collapse here in a minute. And people who have studied there's a whole field of studying the collapse of cultures, have noticed that in the late stage of cultures, once cultures start to dysregulate and deconstruct themselves, some of the patterns that you tend to see all the time are this fascination with the use of wealth, uh, with an extraordinary uh, sexual dysregulation, 
and um, um, uh, just say babies become disposable, uh, sometimes literally, and birth rates decline precipitously. You know, there's all forms of birth control, some of them incredibly savage, uh, because people don't want to be burdened down with kids so much. They become objects of sacrifice tools to be used instead of kind of grisly, I know. Um, in other words, it can be really easy to dishonor your parents and really dangerous, so to speak. I'm not talking about your parents generally, but I'm talking about you know, the generation that has gone before and the culture that, that we receive. It can be very, very dangerous to forget what it is that brought us the blessings that we have. And it would be very helpful to have an attitude of appreciation and gratitude for what brought us the blessings that we have. And it turns out that's actually a fairly godly principle, one that the Lord himself stresses mightily in his early laws. Uh, through his, his commandments, even, even the Big Ten, God is trying to make sure his people don't lose track of the straight edge, to make sure we don't slide into dysregulation and Baal worship, so to speak. Because there is a strong tendency for humanity to slide that way and to slide and to keep sliding. So I say there's this whole field of study about how cultures collapse, even great ones like, you know, the Romans are a famous example. They just sort of collapse from the inside out. The Greeks, of course, the Indus Valley culture uh, in India, the ancient Sumerians, the first really big culture on earth. And, and, and the most interesting examples of, uh, are of those really great, dominant, world-dominating cultures that collapse from within. You know, it's just fascinating that Rome basically collapsed from within. Rome was the greatest empire the world has ever known. These days, there's not even, there's, there's no one left who even speaks Latin. Right? Their culture collapsed so completely uh, that even their language basically has become extinct. Only, you know, a few scholars bother to, to learn it and, and, and preserve it. And this has fascinated scholars for a long time, and, 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 and they look at it, and, and, and basically what they find is that the really dominant cultures do tend to collapse from within, that they tend to uh, dysregulate. And, and it kind of happens in phases. In healthy phases, cultures are fluid and cultures progress in, in a stable way. Things get improved. I mean, they do change. They do grow. They do make decisions to leave aside certain old ways and embrace certain new ways, but it's all kind of, you know, part of the growth process. Just like when we become adults, we set aside some childish things. But then there comes a point in cultures in which culture stops believing in itself, and, and cultures just go into this frenzy of deconstruction. Why? Because they can't because they've become so prosperous and so secure that they can start to dysregulate without immediate consequences. But then that, that takes on a life of itself, and then things tend to uh, collapse. There's a sort of wanton deconstruction. Deconstruction kind of becomes an ideology. Or, to use a phrase that's sometimes popular in the newscasts, there, becomes a there comes a culture war in which culture starts to fight itself. There, Civil war happens uh, in, in culture. And, um, culture wars has been a phrase popular in American social dialogue since at least the 1980s, and I think the culture wars are, are heating up. But eventually what happens is that ultimately uh, the only thing that people believe in is the need to deconstruct their own culture. Right? The only thing people believe in is, is the, uh, the need to not believe in anything to distrust uh, everything. And, and that phrase is, is marked by, by decadence and extreme use of wealth and a fascination with entertainment and an obsession with sexuality as if people are trying to deconstruct themselves, you know, their own behaviors. Some deconstruction happening over there. All right, well, I say all of that stuff and I'm sorry if that sounds like a little bit of a an academic lecture or something like that. But uh, this idea of deconstruction, I think, has captured the popular imagination these days. You know, uh, we have deconstructionist philosophy now. 
we have a deconstructionist ideology in the world, even if, if people are not using that word. We are embracing the impulse to deconstruct things, uh, a little of which can be good, but a lot of which is very, very uh, unhelpful. It's hard to know exactly when this started. Some people say the late 19th century, there was a big move in deconstructionist philosophy. Uh, if you ever had like, you know, a freshman college class on philosophy, then you read guys like Nietzsche, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, he's the guy who's famous for saying, God is dead. God is dead. You guys remember that? Just, just for my own interest. How many of you have heard of Nietzsche or the phrase, God is dead? So yeah, you know, a fair portion of you. Well, when Nietzsche said God is dead, you know, he, he was probably being a little bit arrogant, but he was also making the statement of, of concern. Uh, what, what Nietzsche said, and I'm, I'm summarizing and paraphrasing wildly, is I'm looking around Europe, and it appears to me that belief in God is dead. Europe's had a very hard time. It came through, you know, centuries of like, constant warfare, and, and nobody's believing in God anymore. Nietzsche was the son of a Lutheran pastor, so, you know, maybe he would know. He said, God is dead, and the problem is there's nothing else replacing him. What are we going to do? You know, he was smart enough to realize that if the foundation disappears, if people no longer have a standard for behavior, a standard for what life purpose is, and stuff like that, then people are going to become just crazy dysregulated and things are going to fall apart. And that was the problem to which Nietzsche addressed himself. What are we going to do? What are people going to believe in? And he was pretty good at his critique and he was pretty bad at coming up with an answer. What he said ultimately was, well, people are just going to have to be their own gods. They're going to have to be ubermensch. They're going to have to be supermen. Uh, and what they're going to do is they're going to wipe out everything that they formerly believed in. Even the words that they speak, they're going to have to admit, are just sort of empty. Um, fetishes was his term. Uh, and, and against the backdrop of that chaos, they're going to have to create their own world. They're going to have to be totally creative, total overcomers. They're going to be ubermensch. And unfortunately, that word ubermensch was soon thereafter appropriated by, ooh, you know, the Nazi party. And um, that went very, very badly for the earth. Uh, because it turns out that men aren't very good at being their own gods. That once things start to dysregulate, they just keep going down that path. And Nietzsche predicted that there would come political ideologies uh, that sort of flowed out of the death of God. And that, and that men and, and women would, would try to um, build their own world. He basically predicted Marxism and, you know, socialism and national socialism, which is what Nazism was. And he said that, that millions of people would probably die in wars due to deconstruction. He basically predicted the 20th century. So he was, he was a pretty, pretty uh, smart guy. Uh, he was maybe, maybe the first, but there's been all sorts of deconstructionist philosophers since then. Derrida, Foucault, anybody? First year of grad school. The English majors, yeah. Um, but we'd be, we'd be more familiar with the political ideologies of deconstruction, like, like Marxism, which was basically, you know, Karl Marx was, was, you know, the lead philosopher of the movement. He basically said, the world system uh, is, is empty and worthless. It's, it's all fake and phony. What it is is just the bourgeoisie. It's just the owners of, of the businesses. It's just the rich people, the capitalists, uh, enslaving everybody else. And what we need to do is completely dismantle the whole system. We need to completely erase everything that has gone before us. And we need to rise up as good common people. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, by the way, we good common people will have to create a dictatorship to make sure that things go our way. And we'll need to murder thousands of people if necessary. But this is all going to be for the good. And, you know, it was a culture war. You sort of define this deconstructionist culture war uh, that became Marxism. My favorite example of deconstructionism in political ideology, and this will strike very close to home for some of us, uh, was the, the cultural revolution in Marxist China. Do you guys know what this is? Yeah, and some of us here have lived through that and lost families through it. 
This was Maoist China, and, and, and Mao was a Marxist, and, and they had a you know, communist revolution in China, and they, needed, they decided to overthrow uh, you know, the entire system that had gone before and instill a dictatorship that makes sure that things turned out well, and they murdered you know, tens of millions of people to pull it off. And then in the 1970s, Mao uh, announced this cultural revolution. It wasn't enough just to destroy the whole system. Like, it, he, he was... He was stuck in the passion of deconstruction. So he said, what we need to do is eliminate all evidence of all culture that has gone before us. So if it, if it is old, it must be destroyed. And if you are stuck in old thinking, we will either kill you or throw you out into the countryside and make you do slave labor until you die. And this became, an read this history sometime if you're at all interested in stuff like this. It just became crazy. It just became crazy as the younger generation was basically taught to murder the older generation and to wipe out all cultural artifacts, all hint of Chinese history that preceded the Communist Party. Well, this is deconstruction on steroids. This is where it leads. And once it gets going, people just can't seem to stop it. And we have an entire century of Marxist history that proves it. Um, I'm old enough to remember living that, through that history and, and seeing it, not in my country, but you know, around the world. And a lot of you are too young to remember what it was like. Uh, but it was, it was crazy. And we have literally hundreds of millions of corpses stretched across Europe and Asia that show just how bad it can be once it gets going. When deconstructionism becomes an ideology, an idea that we embrace and worship, when we forget to kind of honor the good stuff that flows down uh, from the generations before us, it might not sound like much at first, but man, it leads to terrible, terrible places. Terrible places. And I spent my whole, you know, I'm, I was a political science, political theory major, you know, this is what I studied. It's nasty, nasty stuff. We. We love to deconstruct, you know. We love to dishonor uh, what has come before. It's just such a rush, isn't it? It's such a, a, a rush. We get to deconstruct our father. We get to, you know, deconstruct our mother. We get to pretend that we're better. We get to pretend that, that we know better. We get to deconstruct our culture. We get to suspect everything about it. We get to deconstruct our sexuality. We get to deconstruct ourselves. It's just, it's just such a feeling of sovereignty, when we do stuff like that, you know, it's awesome. What a rush. And we can keep doing it for a little while. And then things get bad fast. And it always happens that way in world history. But we keep going back to it. Why? Because it's cheap empowerment, man. It's cheap empowerment. We don't have to build anything. We just have to tear stuff down and feel like we're we're really powerful. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's, if you want to feel really powerful and smart, be a critic. If you want to feel vulnerable, try to create something. It's a lot different. It's a lot different. And entire cultures can kind of drift into a critical mood. You know? And it's dangerous, dangerous business. Jesus said one day, as he was talking about some of this old versus new stuff, he said, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple of the kingdom, who gets it, is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. If you are a wise person, you learn to combine the two. You learn to combine new thinking with old thinking new culture with old culture, and you do it in a way that's healthy, honoring, respectful, grateful, and progressive. And Jesus said, man, that's how humanity moves forward. That's what I'm doing, man. That's the kingdom of heaven. You know, it grows. It doesn't stay the same, but it doesn't just get stuck in a tearing down cycle. That's idiocy. He said, I didn't come to eliminate the law. I know I sound like a revolutionary. I came to complete what came before, not destroy 
what came before. I'm thankful for my heritage. That was sort of the Jesus attitude, you know. And I think that's one of the big reasons that the kingdom of heaven, that the, the church has survived so well across so many different cultures and geographies and epochs of history. And the church has done well because it has gotten this principle. Honor. Honor your father and your mother. Honor what has come before. Don't just be a big capital C critic. That leads to death. Be humble. You know, be grateful. So cut to the cage. Chase, obviously, I think we're in a huge deconstructionist culture right now. I think the, the ideology of deconstruction has accelerated radically in America the last eight or nine years. Uh, I think it's producing breathtaking changes and breathtaking conflict. I think there are things happening in the world right now. There are things happening politically, which used to be my field of study, my kuleana, that we've never seen before in America. And I think battle lines are emerging and clashes are happening in a way that we're not even understanding. People aren't even talking about it. And it's just very, very dangerous business. And I think we haven't seen anything yet. I think that, oh, the upheaval is just going to be astonishing in the next 10, 12 years. Uh, and I think we have to understand this. I think we have to understand the storms so that we can understand what our goal is in the midst of it all as people of Christ. Uh, and I think our goal is to have a culture of truth, is to simply have a culture that's based on truth a culture that's based on evidence, a culture that's based on fact. And it may be weird to hear a preacher say, oh no, evidence, scientific facts. But I think Christians are, properly speaking, passionate for truth and passionate for evidence. We are dedicated to reality, not to ideology. You know, and there's going to be some faith in it, you know, things that we can't prove, but but we have to be people of dedication to reality, of simple evidence and, and, and truth because, because I'll tell you, in deconstructionist phases, in deconstructionist ideologies, the first casualty, the first victim is always truth. The first thing that Nietzsche said is truth is relative. It's constructed. It's socially constructed. Even facts, even the words that we speak cannot be, cannot be trusted because you can't trust your own mental process. There is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as truth. If you give me a fact, then I say to you, oh, that's your truth. Oh, that's your experience. But that's not how I experience the world. And truth is the first thing that goes. And, and it has to go because then when, once truth is gone, then it's only a clash of opinions and ideologies. You know? And it's only a clash of feelings. And then you, know, then you can be really sovereign if, you're, if reality does not discipline you so we just have to have a simple culture of, of truth um, to keep a level head, to be objective, to examine the evidence, to think for yourself because the second casualty of deconstructionist movements is the right to think for yourself. You might, you might assume that, that in, in a world in which you're free from the generation that's gone before, in which you're free from truths that are out there that you would be especially able to just think independently, right? Because all the strictures, all the fences have been eliminated, but that's not what happens. That's not what happens historically, and it's not what, it's not what happens philosophically or, or socially, uh, because once the objective standard is removed, then what happens is that the mob dictates, right? If there's no there's no law of truth, then it's just kind of mob mentality. And that's why Marxist movements and all sorts of deconstructive movements need to be dictatorship. That's why they get, they get chaotic and they start to murder uh, millions of people. Once there's no objective standard, then social thought comes to be governed by the mob instead, by, you know, propaganda. Instead, and some of us are old enough to remember when nations have fallen under the control of propaganda and mob mentality. Some of us fought those wars. Some of us fought those battles. Some of us are so young and naive that we don't remember what it was like. Um, 
we're going to take a look uh, in the next uh, six or eight weeks at you know, the facets of our social dialogue, at politics, economics, religion, sexuality, all areas of life, and simply try to evaluate the current social dialogue on these issues, because I'm afraid that if we don't, our thinking will come to be influenced by the mob instead of by truth, sort of the, the, the straight edge. Uh, because after all, it is a rush to deconstruct things. And we can fall prey to the, the feeling of empowerment, uh, the rush that it brings upon us until it goes disastrous, until it destroys us in our lives. So life is hard. Uh, it takes a lot of courage and strength to live well in any generation. And ours is no different. Um, and there's a lot of pressure, you know. It's hard to be strong, isn't it? It's hard to be strong. It's really hard to live according to truth. It's really hard in every generation. And it's really hard in this generation. It's hard to live morally. It's hard to be virtuous. It takes an incredibly strong and disciplined person to be virtuous in this life. Um, and the problem is that the heart of, of, of deconstructionism is to try and free you from the strictures of virtue. To say, no, don't trust those rules. Don't trust that truth. And when it gets going, uh, a deconstructionist movement can start to call weakness strength. And strength and virtue, weakness. Those of us who have tried to live a virtuous life according to, you know, what's been handed down to us from God and his people for generations can start to be labeled as foolish or oppressors or people, you know, just don't get it. Part of the problem when all along you've just been trying to live a disciplined and good life and, and that can be very disorienting. There is not an ounce of humility or gratefulness in deconstructionism, not an ounce of humility or gratefulness. And you can get caught up in that. I can get caught up in that. Deconstructionism has plenty of passion. It just doesn't have any soul. And you get caught up in the passion and find that you're dead inside. And I'm characterizing it that way because I know that some of you feel that already. You're sort of caught between the social passions of the day and kind of wanting to be on the right side of those and feeling just kind of empty in your soul, like, what the hell is going on with me? And that's why I want to talk about culture, because I know some of you have kind of fallen into the trap, you know, the deconstruction. And I don't know, it's probably time to address that directly uh, and to, you know, pull some people out of that tar pit and call right, right, and wrong, wrong, truth, truth, and everything else, pretension and silliness. And to kind of get back to what we know actually works. And to not be afraid of doing that. To not be afraid of what uh, people might shout at us uh, if, if we do it. Because, you know, I, I know, I know how you really are. I know how you really are. You're humble. That's how you really are. I know how you really are. You're grateful people. And when you're grateful, you feel strong and right. I know that about you. I know that you know the difference between discipline and licentiousness. You know that. And I want to affirm you for knowing that and not complicate things uh, for you. I know that you have a commitment to truth. Even when you find truth inconvenient and unpopular, I know that you're a person of truth, a rare commodity on the earth, but the salvation of societies everywhere, that's you. I know that about you, and I know that that will keep you free, and we are to be a free people, free to choose. And they'll open by saying, oh, I'm so thankful for my choices. Yeah, I'd love to restore the power of free choice to everyone. That's a great passion for me because it was a great passion for Jesus. So, uh, so I want to end this way by just saying, this may sound a little bit crazy at this point, but who needs to be free of the mob? Who feels like you've been dominated by a mob mentality? And who feels, 
who feels like, you know what? The truth would feel like freedom if I could just settle into it. If I could just kind of decide to be real. Oh, I'd be much, I'd be much better off. Does that apply to anybody? Yeah? Yeah. It's torture out there, man. It's torture. It's hard to be a person of truth. So I'd just like to pray for that as we close. I just pray really humbly, God, and really gratefully uh, that whatever is going on in the world today, that we could just very simply and contentedly be people of truth. And just to honestly try to find it wherever it, it uh, is resting in our life, wherever we encounter it in the world. Because in truth, Lord, we know you're going to be. Whatever is true, we know that you will affirm. I pray, Lord, for freedom from, uh, from the mob mentality. I pray for freedom from the passions of the earth. And I bless you, brothers and sisters, with the restoration into the ways of, of God, the ways that have worked for thousands of years, have kept people healthy and powerful. I pray, Lord, that you would gently point out to us uh, places where we've given in to passion and lost our soul. Let's very gently point out places where we've uh, compromised with, uh, with the mob, so to speak. Uh, show us uh, the places in our lives where we've become dysregulated. And in the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters, about all of those things, I want to tell you and assure you, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. God has a way to take care of that and to move you forward. Uh, be forgiven in Jesus' name and in the name of the Lord. Be free.